Lemonada. This episode contains themes of suicide. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, please call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. My mom and dad separated when I was about a year old. Shortly after that, my mother's father died by suicide. So it was not an easy time for my mother, who was such a new mother. She and I were living in New York, and it was just the two of us. Although I know it was difficult for my mom, and even though I was just a little baby, I think our connection was a bit of a lifesaver for her at this difficult time. And of course, she was my whole world. We were a duo. Sometimes my grandma Didi was a part of the scene. She helped my mother to take care of me. Though, in a way, Didi needed taking care of too, but... That's a story for another time. My grandmother, whose real name was Grace, was one of five sisters, including Myrna, Francis, Dorothy, and little Joe. (laughs) I know it sounds like I'm confusing my family with little women or something, but those are their actual names. The mother of these five girls was my great-grandmother, Bessie. That is a big load of fabulous old-timey lady names, right? Bessie, Dorothy, Myrna, Francis, Grace, and little Joe. I mean, Jesus, it's fucking grapes of wrath over there. And from all accounts, Bessie wasn't the greatest mother. So Myrna, the eldest daughter, kind of took over in that regard. And in my mind, it's always been this kind of village of women scraping it together in the 1920s with Myrna as a surrogate mother. So I've been thinking about the mother-daughter bond in its many, many guises, birth mother, uh, adopted mother, foster mother, surrogate mother, because you have to be stepmother. I have a stepmother whom I completely adore, by the way. It is a unique and fascinating bond, even when it isn't working particularly well. And it's somehow different from the mother-son bond, the one that I have with my two beautiful sons. It's not better at all, but it is distinctly different. Perhaps, perhaps because built into the mother-daughter connection is that shared female experience. My mom, somehow, against the odds, by the time she became a mother, already had certain instincts that proved to be uh, correct, nurturing, and, well, just nurturing and correct. And hey, if you've been listening to this podcast thing here, you know my mom a little. She has persevered and overcome a lot to become the person that she is. And I think I've talked about it on this show, but she's a poet. And later in life, she's become like a real poet with books published and everything. And a lot of her poetry springs from her family experience. Everybody's family experience is unique, of course, but my mom's has been filled with all of these women. My mother had three daughters, including me, and all three of us are mothers ourselves now. And my sister Phoebe on my dad's side is a mom as well. So there's just like a shit ton of moms and daughters around here. Anyway, my mom really knows her stuff when it comes to being a mother and when it comes to poetry, and she sent all of us, her daughters, that is, this poem. It's by Maggie Smith, the poet, by the way, not the actress. It's called First Fall, and I think it speaks beautifully to the connection between a mother and a child. It goes like this. First Fall. I'm your guide here. In the evening dark morning streets, I point and name. Look, the sycamores, their mottled paint by number bark. Look, the leaves rusting and crisping at the edges. I walk through Schiller Park with you on my chest. Stars smolder well into daylight. Look, the pond, the ducks, the dogs paddling after their prize sticks. Fall is when the only things you know, because I've named them, begin to end. Soon I'll have another season to offer you. Frost, soft on the window, and a porthole side there. Ice sleeving the bare gray branches. The first time you see something die, you won't know it might come back. 
I'm desperate for you to love the world because I brought you here. I get goosebumps from that poem. Isn't that a good poem? I think it's spectacular. To put into words the beginning of the journey of being a parent and the connection between parent and child, lordy, that is a subject that is just giant to me and just endlessly fascinating. How fabulous then that I get to connect today with someone who explores these relationships so profoundly in her own writing. So yeah, today I'm talking to Amy Tan. Hi, I'm Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and this is Wiser Than Me, a podcast where I get schooled by women who are wiser than me. One of the great discoveries for me doing these podcast conversations with seasoned, fascinating women is that there are patterns, life patterns, life experiences that many, if not all, of these women share. One thing that they share is boundless energy, extraordinary amount of energy. Another thing they share is generosity. They're all out there doing good all over the world, and they've all shown extraordinary personal resilience, overcoming huge obstacles and challenges in their youth. So today, I'm going to be talking to a woman who checks all of these boxes and then some. In addition to being the author of powerful stories depicting identity, family, and the immigrant experience, I mean, she wrote The Joy Luck Club, for Christ's sake. Amy Tan is the founder of the Amy Tan Foundation, which provides resources for literacy and educational programs, environmental, conservation, and social justice initiatives in underserved communities. She is the recipient of the Presidential Medal of Humanities, woohoo, and a winner of the Commonwealth Award. She's done everything from writing screenplays and opera librettos to visual art. You should see the birds that she draws with colored pencils. And her latest adventure will be the much-awaited, and I am so awaiting it, 2024 book, The Backyard Bird Chronicles. So, yeah. Everybody knows that Amy Tan is a rock star, but did you know that she is an actual rock star? Yeah, she's the lead singer of a rock band that has performed with Bruce Springsteen and Stephen King and had groupies and this crazy ass cool tour bus. She's as vibrant and fearless and dedicated to her craft as ever, and she just won't slow down, except maybe to have a chat with us. I'm so happy to welcome a woman who is so much wiser than me, Amy Tan. Hi, Amy. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> wow. What an introduction. <laughs> yeah, how about it? But it's all true. Okay. First of all, for our the people who are listening, I have to explain that Amy and I met in Washington, D.C. because we were both blessed to have received the, Amy received the National Medal of Humanities, and I received the National Medal of Arts. And these are medals that are given out by the uh, National Endowment for the Arts and President Biden. And we sat together the night before the actual event at the White House. They, they gave a dinner for the medal recipients, and it was really lovely. And Amy was my seatmate and her, and her wonderful <laughs> husband, Lou, too. And, um, you know, I have to be honest with you. It was all so overwhelming. I don't know what your experience was with this. I can't remember any of the details of those, like, 48 hours in D.C., like the dinner that night. I mean, I was so excited to be talking to you. I can barely remember what we talked about, except birds, of course. We talked about birds and your drawing, right? Yes, right. Yeah. It was the same. I think it was the same. It was just overwhelming trying to process why I was there, for one thing. Yeah, me and, too. And then who else was there and what good things they did. And maybe I didn't do things that really, des you know, were deserving of the medal, you know, but... That's the kind of thing that always goes through my head. Do I deserve all these wonderful things that come to me? Well, I think you do. I, I think it's long overdue. You should have a number of these medals. And then I looked on your Instagram, Amy, and I saw that there was a picture of you getting the medal from Biden. And you said, I thought I was being so cool and calm. <laughs> 
and you're like your head is back and you're yeah my mouth is wide open my teeth are exposed I look like I'm either drunk or you know having a a a dance moment right about to dance with him yes totally and I had this first of all it's a charming photograph I love it but I had the same experience because I have to tell I, I when I went up there to get it I was so overwhelmed and he put the metal around my neck and I thought I would do a joke that the metal was too heavy. And I sort of did this thing like I was collapsing. And of course, all the people took pictures of that moment. So it's so bizarre. I'm making a face. Yeah. I'm hamming it up. And I had, and then it happened all so quickly. And then afterwards, I forgot to stand there and take a picture with him because I was so overwhelmed. I was like, I got to get back to my seat. It was all so crazy, wasn't it? It was. I was glad I was not wearing high heels. That I think the combination of the excitement and getting up there would have been too much for me to, you know, remember where where my feet were, where the heels were going up those steps. I was wearing high heels, and I was very nervous. That was. Um, it was. It was truly an unforgettable experience, and. Anyway, I was I was delighted. Hey, listen, are you comfortable if I say your real age? Oh, absolutely. I've been giving my real age since before I was this real age. I, I'm actually now 71, uh-huh. um, but I, w- I started saying I was 70 when I was 69. I, Just I kept... to get used to it? <laughs> no, no, I kind of forgot. It was like, what? What age am I? 70. And then, I, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to be 70 next year. <laughs> um, so that's how much it doesn't really bother me what my age is. I, I like to say what my age is. Yeah. You know, what's bad, though, if you say your age, and I have this chi- these Chinese genes, so, you know, you tend to have fatter cheeks, and so you don't show the wrinkles as much. And um, I'm waiting for the day I say I'm 71 and somebody does, nobody says, oh, you don't look your age. And then, <laughs> then how will I feel about that? Or <laughs> Well, you certainly don't look your age. I love that you say fat cheeks. You have this incredible bone structure and gorgeous skin. And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's fat cheeks. Do you fa- how old do you feel? Like inside, how old do you feel? You know, I think it really depends on the context. There are times that I feel like I'm five still, or maybe oh. I'm nine, or I'm 21, or I'm 24, or it goes back to different periods in my life that I think are significant. But I definitely feel my my age in a mental way. Um, mm-hmm. But emotionally, I think it, it bounces around in different ways. Oh, good. You know, not not terrible ages. Got it. So... Since you wrote The Joy Luck Club, and here you are, you're about to have your, I don't know which number book is coming out in 2024. I honestly cannot wait for this book, and I have to ask you about it. The Backyard Bird Chronicles. This may be an unfair and sort of ridiculous question, but can you talk about how your writing has evolved since those early days? Yeah. You know, uh, uh, this may sound... um Ironic, but that the more I write, the more difficult it is. Really? In the beginning, in the beginning. And then the key difference is that when I started writing the Joy Luck Club, I was unknown, completely unknown. Mm. I'd never been published, not even a short story or anything, or one short story in a very tiny circulation magazine. And after Joy Luck Club, suddenly it, it just felt like everybody was watching. And there were the reviews, the good and bad reviews, and people saying all the time, I can't wait for the next one. And suddenly it wasn't a private... uh, Undertaking. Yeah, it was no longer private. And I had all these expectations weighing on me. And it's taken a a long time to undo those expectations. And I try to get back into that place where nobody is watching over my shoulder so that makes it difficult. The other is that, you know, you want to grow just like anybody else. And there's this feeling that maybe I'm not growing as much as I should. And maybe my, my freshness that I had when I was first writing is no longer there because I, I have assumptions now. Or I've mm-hmm. learned too much and I've used that as a, a fixed way of seeing things. And so I have to break out of that as well. 
Um, because fiction, writing what I do in fiction requires me to discover things for me to find out what this is about at the same moment, in essence, that you would reading it later. You're I not going to know what's going to happen. I can't know what's going to happen next as I'm writing it in terms of feelings, in terms of the emotional resonance. So that's not to do with plot. It has more to do with how does this all accumulate into this one big emotional boom at the end? How have you been able to free yourself from those expectations that you that you're discussing? And also, how do you free yourself from what you know? How do you do this? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it's quite hard. Yeah. One is that I stopped reading reviews, um, both good and bad ones. Oh, that's so smart. No so reviews. So smart. Yeah. I don't read interviews. I don't, you know, if there was a televised thing, I don't look at it again. I don't review my life uh, once it's happened. It goes along with this whole thing of don't do reruns of your life and look for all the, the ways that it was terrible. It's good you're not an actor. That's all I got to tell yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We who do public things, you know, this is something that's out there that we have to think about that, that can um, really affect us in how we perform or write or draw or whatever we do, um, taking us out of that head space or that heart space. So I don't read the reviews. I also tell myself if I do th something stupid, and certainly I will have said many things I wish I could take back on this podcast, but I'll say, you know what? Julie is not going to remember tomorrow, and no one's going to remember tomorrow. Or if she does remember, she won't remember it 10 years from now, <laughs> so it doesn't matter. Or I say, when I die, who's going to greet me at the gates of wherever <laughs> I go? Is it going to be um, a bunch of people laughing at me, or is it going to be my mother? <laughs> So that, that sets things in perspective as well. Um, yeah, it, I do a number of things to try to get it out. A lot of it is just head in the sand. When did you start to realize you had to do that in order to move forward creatively? Was that a while ago? Yes. Um, I stopped reading reviews um, with my second book. And I found because every single bad thing ever said about my books stuck in my head in the middle of the night. It was like cat pee on my pillow. You know, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't get rid of it. So mm. I stopped that completely. And it's been great. I don't miss it at all. Some people think, well, isn't that hard not to, to know? And... And I just say, you know, you can just assume somebody has said something negative for their various reasons. And part of it is to realize that nothing they can say has really anything to do that is important about what I was doing, why I was doing it. They can't, you know, if I, if I pay attention to it, that means I have to assess why I was writing something. Was I writing to please somebody? And, you know, should I change my writing now because somebody didn't want to hear about dogs or hear about, you know, they think my story should go back to being a certain way. Um, should mm -hmm. I do that? So there's no helpful advice I can get from mm -hmm. reading reviews of something already done. So that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed since The Kitchen God's Wife, right? Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, right. You know, I do make the mistake of reading reviews. I um, I try not to read bad ones, but it is interesting because when I get a bad review, it has a <laughs> cat pee like quality <laughs> in that it uh, is it's here to stay in my yeah. brain. It takes yeah. up some uh, yeah. space in my brain and uh, not welcome space, but it's invaded. Yeah. And yeah. um, and so, therefore, the opposite has to be true, too. You can't give too much credit to the the good reviews, the raves, yeah. the whatever. Exactly. You have to exactly. discard as all well, of yeah. all of them. Right. And I'm going to guess, you tell me if I'm right, but it seems to me in terms of your uh, trying to constantly sort of free yourself from a way of thinking or uh, as you attack your, because that was the second piece of this, you are strike me as somebody who does new things a lot. Uh, I mean, 
Your drawing is extraordinary. You sing with a rock band. Uh, you like to, you know, it seems as if, I don't know if you were snorkeling or scuba diving, but with the sharks and the, 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 and so on and so forth. So, I mean, is that a part of the process for you is trying new things? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's definitely very consciously something that I do. Um, I mean, I don't sit down and say, gee, what are the five things I should do in the next 10 years? Right. But I'm very conscious of the fact that I should try something new constantly. And it really has to do with things that I, I thought I have, would have wanted to do, um, as well as attempting things that always scared me. Sharks used to really terrify me. And I used to be scared well, ex- of swimming me, in the with ocean. Good, with good reason, I might point out. I mean, that was that is not an irrational fear, Amy Tan. And it actually, there are a lot of sharks that are very harmless, and the number of shark attacks are very exceedingly rare. Yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go out and deliberately swim with great white sharks, covering myself with you know steak juice or something. Right. But you know, a whale shark is the most benign creature out there, a curious, benevolent creature who was very aware of me and swam next to me the whole time. When I tired, it would slow down and let me keep up. Where were you? Where were you when you were doing that? The whale shark. I did it too once. I was at Isla Mujeres and the time to go is middle of July, I think. And uh-huh. yeah, it was, it was spectacular. It was life-changing. Aren't they the most gorgeous animals? Isn't the pattern on the skin the most yeah. exquisite? It's like it's yeah. designed by a designer. I guess <laughs> yeah. it is designed by a designer. Definitely. Right. But it's it's bad to touch it, I learned. Sure. And they told us, you know, not to touch the whale shark and um, don't get into its space. But the whale shark was coming really close to me and it was right against me and I needed to be at least an arm's length away. So I put my hand, my fist against the side of the shark just so I would be that distance. And I got out of the boat and I saw there was blood dripping. And I thought, what's this blood? And it was my knuckles because <gasps> the shark skin, you remember how they say shark yes. skin is very rough? That's what it is. It's very rough. Wow. It didn't feel that way at the time. You know, you're so excited. You're not aware that your skin is being taken off, sandpapered off, you know, but there, there it was. Wow. But the adrenaline kept you probably from feeling it. And oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just so excited. And, and you know, other sharks, I've, they're white tip sharks. They're, uh, they're not that big. So they're definitely not going to try and eat something that's beyond. Uh, what would normally be on their diet. I I was in the water once. uh, We were in the waters off the coast of the Bahamas, and this is a long time ago. And and I don't want to scare you off sharks, but I was in the water. And my husband, Brad, came to the boat, and he – and I was far from the boat. I was just paddling around. We were doing a a thing with dolphins, and it was a scientific boat, believe it or not. And and I was just paddling around, and he comes to the bow of the boat, and he says, Jules, I don't want you to panic, but you need to come back to the boat. There's there's a shark in the water. Anyway, I, I did get back to the boat. I kept my eyes on the ladder. I didn't take my eyes off. And it turned out it was like a 12-foot bull shark that had been in the water. Which, oh. Yeah. Getting back to the boat was smart, <laughs> for sure. Yes. More with Amy Tan after the break. Say hello to your in real life makeup filter in a bottle, CoverGirl's Simply Ageless Skin Perfector Essence. CoverGirl knows when it comes to makeup, sometimes it can feel like a trade off between products that work and products that keep your skin healthy in the long run. That's why they introduced their new skincare and makeup hybrid foundation, the Skin Perfector Essence. It harnesses the power of micro droplet technology with pigmented capsules designed to burst upon application, melting seamlessly into the skin to deliver a natural, even toned glow. 
This foundation is the ultimate blend of skincare and makeup. It boasts 0.5% Bacuchiol, a plant-based retinal substitute promising to rejuvenate your skin. Hydration is also front and center thanks to CoverGirl's formulation featuring 71% water content. This essence promises an immediate hydration hit that keeps working for up to 24 hours, leaving your skin feeling nourished, revitalized, and radiantly healthy. And with eight versatile shades, finding your ideal match is a breeze. This skin perfector essence is an essential go-to, whether you're gearing up for an evening out, aiming for a no-makeup makeup look for daytime, or Setting the scene for a romantic date. And the best part is it's all clean, vegan, and cruelty-free. Embrace the effortless beauty that comes with CoverGirl's Simply Ageless Skin Perfector Essence. Find your shade now, only from easy breezy beautiful CoverGirl. Hi, I'm Glennon Doyle, author of Untamed and host of the podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. On We Can Do Hard Things, my wife, Abby, my sister, Amanda, and I do the only thing we've found that has ever made life any easier. We drop the fake and we just talk really raw and honestly about all the hard parts of life. So come on over and join us and some of our friends and greatest heroes like former First Lady Michelle Obama, Tracy Ellis Ross, Gloria Steinem, Elizabeth Gilbert, Brandi Carlisle. Brene Brown, and our beloved community, the Pod Squad. You'll hear refreshingly honest conversations, trust me, about sex, gender, parenting, blended families, our bodies, anxiety, addiction, feeling overwhelmed, just all of it. Life is hard, so let's do it together. Meet us every Tuesday and Thursday for We Can Do Hard Things, one of Apple and Spotify's top shared podcasts of 2023. Listen to and follow We Can Do Hard Things, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and everywhere you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us suffer from decision paralysis, like we all wish we had more time, but when we actually find time in our schedules, we don't know how to spend it. Sometimes discovering what matters most requires a bit of reflection and support. That's where a therapist can be absolutely critical. Therapists can help you look plainly at how you spend your time and figure out what's actually making you happy or even what's actually helping you make progress towards a goal. Whether it's through helping you through a crisis or just navigating through the structure of your day, therapy can make all the difference. Being able to do a weekly step back with a professional means getting perspective on your own life you didn't have before, and it can definitely help you to see the decisions you're making more clearly. If you're considering therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's an entirely online platform tailored for convenience, flexibility, and your schedule. Simply complete a short questionnaire to connect with a licensed therapist. Plus, you can switch therapists at any time without extra fees. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash wiser today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash wiser. Hey there, wiser than mirrors. Uh, just a quick note before we get back to the wonderful Amy Tan. I want to tell you real quick about my new movie called You Hurt My Feelings. It's a little comedy about the little white lies we tell to the people we love the most. I play a writer who discovers that her longtime adoring husband, who said he loved her latest book, actually hates her latest book. Can you imagine that mind fuck? It was so superb to work again with Nicole Hall of Center, who is the writer and director. The entire cast is truly unbelievable. I'm so proud of the damn thing. You Hurt My Feelings is out this weekend in theaters everywhere. I hope you go check it out. My experience of your writing is that it comes from the most compassionate place. It feels like you get into the skin of your people, your characters with tremendous empathy. Yeah. I think most writers do that. You have to be sympathetic to your characters. But I also think that imagination or fiction especially is, it's good practice for compassion. It It's mm. the way we exercise that because we're putting ourselves into the lives of of these imaginary characters, and we beca- yes. we take on their circumstances and mm-hmm. their history, their personal history. But before you think that I am this great compassionate person who's you know got really got it together, I'm I'm 
somebody has a problem with forgiveness. So, oh, really? Um, oh, yeah. You know, when somebody has betrayed me, I have a hard time with that. And, um, and I usually what I do is I just let go of that relationship and I don't really give it a second chance. Um, it's not the one little thing, you know, it, it's not that one person said, I really think her book stinks. That would not be enough for me to, you know, give up that relationship. But it would be something a little bit bigger and much more hurtful. And I won't get into those things, but I, I do sometimes look back and think, well, maybe I've cut off so many relationships because I know so many people. Or maybe it's because people see me as a target and so they will, more people will do things like that. I think it's a, not a huge problem, but I think it's an issue that I have to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Well, talk about that. Talk about forgiveness and your family. I'm curious if you don't mind, because I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about how your mother and her behavior towards you and you, you've certainly forgiven your mother, it seems. Uh, oh, yeah, and, yeah. No, yeah. I, there's nothing there to forgive. You know, she's, she did things for certain reasons that I understand now. And everything is, has transformed all those wounds that mm-hmm. were there have, mm-hmm. are no longer there. My mother actually did a wonderful thing and, and apologizing for all the things she'd done that hurt me. And yeah, tell that story when she was I, ill, right? Yeah. She had Alzheimer's in about uh, two or th- years into it. She didn't really speak that much. She certainly couldn't call me. She didn't know how to call. And I got this phone call from her. And she was panicked and she was speaking clearly in English sentences. And I, she said, I'm, I'm scared. I don't know where I am. And I said, Oh, um, you're fine. We often, you know, forget things. No, no, this is different. She went on and on. And then finally she said, I just want to tell you that I know I did things to hurt you when you were little. And I, and I said, No, you, you, you didn't. It's, and she she kept insisting, and then she said, "I just hope you can forget, just as I've forgotten." And and that to me wiped away every single wound that I had had since I was little, and when I was an adult, anything she had said, it just removed it completely. And I, I was so grateful she had said that. I didn't even have to think about what what all the different situations were with the same kind of pain, because she had in that moment come back, <laughs> back into this consciousness just to tell me that. I uh, just, uh, I find that so moving. And the, that is such a blessing that you had that yeah. opportunity with her. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a blessing. In your family, a lot of things were kept secret, not talked openly about, right? Um yeah. And a lot of family secrets are obviously rooted in shame. And I have, have in, in my family, you know, there's a lot of actually suicide in my family, and there's a lot of shame connected with it. My grandfather died by suicide, and my grandmother really talked about it like, like as if he had a heart problem. Mm. There was a lot of shame around that. Mm-hmm. How have you broken mm-hmm. that? How have you, have you liberated yourself from that feelings that of shame trauma and, yeah, yeah the trauma well I, I think that the real um danger of of a secret like suicide in the family is that you don't understand why people are spinning out of control in the way that they are or that this this urge could somehow be planted in you uh mm-hmm. without your knowing it because of the way that you know people react my mother's mother um, killed herself and my mother saw her do this and was by her side as she was dying for over a couple of days. Um, she overdosed on raw opium, deliberately took raw opium and swallowed it in a New Year's 
rice cake. Uh, the idea was that it'd be sticky and wouldn't be able to be extracted. My mother told me when I was growing up, she died accidentally. Later, she died accidentally eating opium. You know, you'd think that I would question why was she eating opium. Mm-hmm. Um, later, she said it was in, you know, she didn't mean to kill herself. She just wanted to scare the guy. Later, it became clear to me by the circumstances and the date she did it and everything that it was deliberate. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, my mother became suicidal. She attempted numerous times, was hospitalized numerous times. I found out my sister, um, one of my sisters was suicidal and made several attempts. Wow. And, um, and I could, you know, I was, I could feel that in me at times this sense that was overwhelming where you you know i just felt like i needed to escape i needed to just obliterate everything so i wouldn't have to feel this anymore and that was earlier in life and and i was lucky to recognize what that was that the feeling is equivalent to something like it's like a charlie horse or it's like a you know, it, it, these feelings, these bodily sensations you cannot get rid of. They're automatic. And, and yet I recognize that when I had that, I could sense that. And I know oh, that's the feeling my mother had. That's, you know, why she, she had no place else to turn to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think by being aware of it, that this was a reaction, um, I could, look at it and not let it overcome me. Knowing also I had these other ways of dealing with that, like writing. I could write what was bothering me. I could, I could, I could control my future. I could control what I wanted to do. I had choices. They didn't. So I, I was not faced with the same circumstances, but mm-hmm. I think it was good for me to recognize that this impulse was something ingrained in me. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was modeled for you in addition. I mean, yes. It's, yeah. 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 Is, is that still a struggle for you? Is that something that you still work on? No, or you, no, 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 no. That's not that. That was something that was there in my twenties, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was a very pivotal moment experience that happened in my twenties. I was in a doctoral program then. But our roommate and, and one of our closest friends, uh, was murdered. And, uh, oh. that murder really changed how I had to look at my life. And, uh, I was the one who identified him. And <gasps> it was a, a terrible, brutal murder. Um, oh. and had to go through the trial and, but I had dreams every night between his murder and the end of the trial, and they just changed me completely. You know, that, that to unpack basically all these insecurities, all these ways that I dealt with, uh, think situations in life, uh, you know, depression, all of that. It just unpacked it in these dreams one by one. And, uh, you know, better than paying a psychiatrist. <laughs> I was, that was how, how my much? next question. $200 an hour, whatever. <laughs> just, just go to bed and have a dream and work it out. But wait a minute. Did yeah, you? Yeah. Really? So have you never, have you been in therapy? Have you ever tried therapy? I went, I went to therapy once for four months because I was working 90 billable hours a week and people kept telling me I had a problem. I had workaholism <laughs> and I said, no. I, I don't because I don't like what I'm doing. They said, that's why you're a workaholic. You can't stop working even though you don't like what you're doing. So I went to uh, talk to this guy, this Jungian psychiatrist, and he did the best thing for me. He fell asleep three times, and then I quit. And I decided what I had to do then was not do what I didn't like. I should do what was important to me. And I started writing fiction. So... That was great. He offered to help me write fiction. And I thought, really? Are you kidding me? I think you oh. should give me back the money I paid I for this I think you need your money back. You yeah. First of all, I have to tell you, I can't believe you're telling me that because in, I've been to a couple of therapists in my life and 
two of the therapists that I went to both <laughs> fell asleep <laughs> during a session. And I, I remember... <laughs> Don't you feel better? Don't you feel no, better I now? <laughs> I do. I feel better now that we have this uh, shared, um, absolutely bizarre experience. I, rem- I, I remember in both circumstances being paralyzed. Like, should I just stay quiet so he can I know, continue? That's what I said. <laughs> should I? Should I not embarrass him that he fell asleep? Yeah. Should I? Meanwhile, say I'm mortified, but I don't yeah. want to make him feel bad about himself. Isn't it a strange? Yeah. Reaction, yeah. right? Well, I and I also analyzed for him that it happened only when I was happy, when I was crying, when I was really upset. He was there; he was all ears. When I was talking about what a good week I had, that's when he fell asleep. So I thought he's going to reinforce me to be unhappy, and this is very unhealthy. And I, I told him that, you know, I said you could really do d- people a lot of damage because the message there is that I don't count. And also that I'm boring, you know, and that if I'm not miserable, yeah, I'm not interesting. So uh, this is bad therapy. And I love I can, your balls yeah. in that situation. <laughs> I do. I really am admiring of that. Did he hear you when you said that? Was he, he never, re- well, I wrote it in a letter. Mm. Um, but I did what you did as I, I went back and I realized, you know, I had not said anything because it was embarrassing. And then I said, no, you have to say something. So I wrote it all in a letter, but he never responded. Um, I asked for my money back too, but he didn't, he didn't give me the money back either. So <laughs> this guy died a while back, but I think he's probably heard me repeat the story that I, you know, I started writing after my psychiatrist fell asleep three times. Well, um, I maybe I hope his yeah. family has the letter because uh, that's a that's a, a valuable letter to hang on to. Even <laughs> <laughs> they should have that framed up in there. <laughs> not, not for his legacy, certainly. No, but maybe for their family legacy. It's kind of yeah. it's kind of incredible. I think. <laughs> um, just going back to your mom. And maybe this is also an unfair question, but like, what's the most important thing that your mother taught you, do you think, Amy? Yeah. Were there a couple of like nuggets? Yeah. Yeah. One um, that really stands out is that I could not let other people determine for me who I was and how important I was. Mm. And even though she was the one who did the most intrusive manipulation of who I was and what my worth was. She did not want me to go out in the world. And if, if there was somebody who was condescending that I would believe what this person had to say. And I could see now, um, that she had a real problem with that. Her, her own mother killed herself as a result of her station in life as a concubine and being told that basically she was worth nothing. She could not tolerate that idea that her life was determined by somebody else. So my mother would often say this, if somebody was, uh, you know, in front of us and you could see that they were acting in a disingenuous, patronizing way, she would say something. This person don't trust them. They are trying to say this to make themselves feel bigger than you are. And, and that was a constant message in my life. She also said things like, um, about whether I wanted to be a mother, because at one time I, wa- I wasn't sure. And, and I think most mothers would try to make you feel that maybe this is something you really need to be seriously thinking about, having a baby, how wonderful it is. My mother said, if you want a baby, even if you're poor, you can, you can have a baby. You'll find a way to make this okay. And then she said, but if you don't want a baby, no one, not your husband, not your mother-in-law, not your friends. No one should ever make you feel you have to have a baby. And she said, I know what it's like. I was raped every night. I had three abortions. And and so she was saying right there, you make that decision. She was a feminist before. I was going to say, before we, there was feminism. Yeah, exactly. She was so modern in her thinking about this. Um, she thought women were better than men. She said, she said something to me about that. You're not equal to a man. You are better than a man. 
Um, she said that the reason why I should get a job, a really good job and study hard so I can get a good job is so I could be independent. And if my husband treated me poorly, I could leave without a second thought about how I would take care of myself. Mm. Um, she didn't have that choice. And so she was building in my mind the, the strengths that I would need to be independent, to not be afraid. Fortunately, I married a really good guy <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I do have a good job, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but she you know, empowered but you. I mean, she empowered you. She empowered me. Yeah. Big time. We're, we're actually, tomorrow's our 53rd <gasps> first date anniversary. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And how many years so, have you been married? 49. Congratulations. Yeah. I know. I feel so lucky. That is so lovely. I'm so happy you've had uh, such a um, healthy, uh, long marriage. That's such a another blessing, right? I, I've uh, I've been married now thirty. Oh Lord, it's gonna be thirty six. Yeah, so it's almost thirty six years. <laughs> oh Jesus Christ, <laughs> that's so crazy. Anyway, um, and it's. Amazing to be married to one person for that long, you know? I mean, it's um, yeah. that's a lot of life together, isn't it? Well, we essentially grew up together, it seems. Yeah. I, I was 18. He was 19. We, we joke that the secret to a long marriage is separate bathrooms and separate closets, <laughs> um, which can be true if one person is really messy and the other one isn't. And our presence to each other after being together so long and knowing we don't need anything. Yeah. Um, it's little pledges to do something like one pledge for years ago, it started with, he would cook me 10 new recipes, you know, and I get to pick the recipes or oh. when I, when it turned out I couldn't drive anymore um, because I have uh, epilepsy, he would take me places without ever complaining. What did you pledge to him? I didn't really pledge that much because, you know, I, <laughs> I, I would pledge, you know, we would also pledge things that had to do with, um, certain parts of us personality wise. Like he knows this in me that if I get upset about something, I can't let it go and I'll obsess about it. It's mm -hmm. not that even that I have to be mad. It's just something that went, um, wrong or, you know, bad service or whatever. And I'll just go on and on and on and on. And he'll say, let it go, Amy, let it go, let it go. And so I do this pledge to just let it go, <laughs> to just say, you're right. I'll just say, you're right. Let it go. Let it go. So that's the gift. Yeah, the song that's from the Disney gift, cartoon. You know, because these are things yes. that can irritate your partner, you know, and drive you yes. crazy. So, so we don't need to give each other actual physical gifts, you know, for uh -huh. every birthday or anniversary or Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, we just have this more on a daily basis. That's nice. Yeah. Although with your, if you've got your 50th anniversary coming up in another year, I think you need a monster pledge <laughs> and, and, or a good pair of earrings. That's my, that's my <laughs> advice. <laughs> I actually put a ban on jewelry about 20 years ago. No oh, more, God. no more. My he husband wishes I'd one... put a ban on. <laughs> he wishes. He's hearing this and he's like, oh, my God, I'd kill for a ban on jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, he would go to this one store and he'd come back with jewelry. I said, no more, no more. And I, yeah. you know, it meant a lot. But now what am I going to do? Yeah, well, I mean, you could wear it and enjoy it, for example. <laughs> After the break, my conversation with Amy Tan continues. Don't go anywhere. Now, you talked about that you have um, epilepsy. Um, how is your health? Because I know you had a battle my, with Lyme, yeah. Lyme disease, right? I still have Lyme disease. It's I. It was caught so late that a lot of things are just 
there. And, uh, but it's managed. I manage it really well. So the only thing that is, that I can't do is drive. Mm-hmm. And I never liked to drive. Um, so I, I don't feel any limitations there. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the permanent damage, you know, the epilepsy, the neuropathy. Um, but I also now have this great fascination with the brain. I've, I've always had this fascination, but what I've learned is that when something goes wrong with your brain, that's when you learn what your brain actually does. You know, it's miraculous what the brain can handle, what it can do for you, and how much you can still get out of your brain. Uh, even if you have this, this problem, you can circumvent this problem and try working it out this way. So whether it's a ride from your husband or, you know, whether you can focus on doing something else that is not as limited. Did, did you ever see, that reminds me of that, I think it was even a TED Talk, that doctor who studied, who, who uh, was a... Oh, yes. Yes, Neurologist. you know what I'm talking about? Yes. yes. She had a stroke. She had a yes. stroke and then she yes. was describing and evaluating her stroke as it was happening. Yes, yes. yes. That's an extraordinary a- piece to watch. I don't have, I have had microstrokes apparently, and I'm aware of when I've been aware of when that was happening, but also with the seizures, it's the actually the little microstrokes that led me to have permanent damage in my brain that causes the seizures. Um, but the, your brain, describing what your brain is doing, you know, when it's going off kilter and Things are getting brighter. You see colors you've never seen before. You didn't know existed. Um, really? Uh, my vision would become like an eagle's or certain things with the sensations of being on a, you know, standing still and everybody's on a merry-go-round around me. Very odd things. And, you know, you're just saying, this is what the brain does. It hmm. doesn't allow that to happen when it's functioning correctly, but it can do this when it's not. So I have this deep appreciation for everything that the brain does. And, yeah. uh, and it's a it's a miraculous organ in your body that you should be grateful for and protect as much as you can. But you seem like somebody who's fit. Do you exercise? I do. I started exercising regularly about eight years ago, I think. My personal mm-hmm. trainer and I were trying to think of how long it had actually been. It came at a time when I decided to stop dyeing my hair black mm-hmm. and and letting it go white. And then I would dye it colors, different colors if I wanted to, mm-hmm. which I have been doing myself. Um, and I started taking personal training and I've discovered that I have to pay somebody to make me exercise. And I used to think somebody would have to pay me to exercise, but no, I would have said, okay, I'll forgo the money. I don't need the money. <laughs> and then not exercise. So paying somebody, I know I have to pay this person yeah, three times a week. And I've been doing that for the last eight years. And the pains I used to have in my knees, in my hip, in my back, my shoulders, I don't have that anymore. Oh, wow. And uh-huh. my body is so much better than it was 10 years ago or even 20 years ago. So you won't be asking your money back from this, from your trainer, like you did your, your no, psychiatrist. No, the, you know, this is money well and spent. And he has to listen to me talk too, <laughs> you know. So it, it's like the psychiatrist, you know. Yeah. He knows more about my life than most people. Really? Yeah. That's fantastic. That's incredible. I love it. Um so let me ask you, is there something you'd go back and tell yourself at the age of 21, if you could? I'm trying to think at age 21 what I was um, most concerned about, and that was that I should have a plan for the rest of my life securely in place, and that if I was not getting everything aligned properly, this would be a disaster. And I would want to say that it's not going to happen the way you think at age 21, that all these things that are lined up, they probably will fall away anyway, it won't matter. And that what you'll end up doing is something that is more meaningful to you once you really learn who you are. 
uh, mm. because that's what's happened. I started off thinking I'd get a doctorate in linguistics and teach at a university, and I'd have to get this paper published and make this discovery. And then my friend was murdered, and I realized this was a really selfish way to look at my life, and I should do what he was going to do and work with people with disabilities. So I talked my way into a job to do that, and then it went from there. I've had different jobs leading up to my becoming a fiction writer. None of it was planned in a particular way, certainly not the murder of my friend, not the thing that led me to leave that field five years later, or uh, never was planned that I would get published. So many things just came to me, and I, I would tell myself that there would be, there will be things that come to you without your even, even asking for it consciously that actually are about what's important to you. They will come up and that will happen. Um, on the other hand, I wouldn't say it to myself at age 21 because I think it was incredibly good practice to go through all those different stages because all the, even the bad stuff, even the death of my father and my brother when I was young, or even the things that my mother and I went through, those were all what made me who I am. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that I write about, um, yeah. where I have to look deep inside of me of, you know, what the, what's the meaning of this? That in this narrative of my life, there's nothing I would take out and say, gosh, if I could have, I would have thrown this away. Right. It's um, led to this moment. It's led of to who I am and how yeah. I think. But right. that ultimately also means that I have to love who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, if I didn't like who I am, then I'd say, gosh, if I didn't have this, if this hadn't happened, you know, then I could fix it. And I would be the person I would have wanted to be. Mm -hmm. um, but I am the person I want to be. So I don't, I don't have those feelings of going back and changing them. Um, because I don't have control over it anyway. You know, right. A lot and that stuff. harkens back to, to Lou yeah. saying, let yeah. it go. Let it go. Yeah. Let yeah. it go. Exactly. Exactly. Is there, is there something, although you're not that much older than me, but is there something you would like me to know about aging that I don't know? Um, what I did very consciously getting older, knowing that I would get old is I built a house that is universal design. What does that mean? It's designed according to ADA specs. So if I was disabled today, if I couldn't walk, if I was in a wheelchair, if uh, I couldn't use my arms that well, I could do very well in the house that I'm living in because I have level access into the house, even though there are three stories, it's kind of a narrow built house. All of the bathrooms have grab bars. What looks like a towel bar is a grab bar. We've had guests staying in a guest studio and they have pulled the towel bars off or ripped off the toilet paper holder trying to get up from the toilet. This is something that happens to elderly people. They have a hard time getting up. So every single bar in our towel bar is a grab bar, um, as well as having official grab bars everywhere. Um, but they look nice. They're, they're cedar, um, cedar wood, wooden things that look great. Levers for the water faucets that are, if I couldn't control my hands, I, all I have to do, it's preset to a temperature. All I have to do is bump it up or bump it down, turn it on, turn it off. So, Many different things um, related to that. I mean, the kind of self-cleaning toilet. Mm -hmm. I had to take care of my mother's toileting needs at the end of her life, which I, I love doing. I love that I could be the mom and diaper the child. But mm -hmm. I thought if I didn't have Alzheimer's, I might not want somebody to do that for me. So I have a bidet toilet. I'm so admiring of how you've thought all of this through. I think that is... I mean, it's astounding. I've never heard of anybody doing something like the way you have, and I'm in awe. I am in awe. I've had people say to me, don't be so paranoid. You'll be fine. And I thought, oh, it's not paranoia. It's, no. It's being realistic. You know, it's hopeful, actually. Yeah, it's it, being practical. It's hopeful that I will live for a very, very long time and will actually find some of this stuff useful. So I think of it 
in those terms. My mother was also a big worrier. And when I was growing up as a kid, I always had 10 worries on my fingers. You know, I'd count them all. <laughs> and I didn't want to have to worry. And once I did that, I, I don't worry. You know, the worst can happen. I think this house would be good for a lot of whatever the worst could be. End of life, I could stay here. Mm -hmm. I even have the, the bed that goes up and down, that kind of thing, which is very useful now. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, it's good for watching yeah. TV or whatever, yeah. or reading. Well, Amy Tan, I have to say, I love your approach to life. I find it very inspirational. And uh, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you took all this time to talk with me today. Oh, yeah, it's fun. Really. It, it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. we had a chance to talk. We should me talk too. more. We should talk more. I'll tell you the real dirt then. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you the real dirt. I got tons of it. Yeah. <laughs> you always need a girlfriend you can tell dirt to. Yeah, you know? that's the best. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, um, I'll let you get on with your day and have a happy date anniversary. And give my very best to Lou as well. I will. I will. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Oh, my God. That woman is impressive. My mother's going to lose her mind when I tell her about this conversation. I got a Zoomer. Hi, Mommy. Hello. Hi, sweetie. Mom? Yes. I just spoke with Amy Tan for seven and a half hours. <laughs> so you were a young person when it started. Yeah, I was you were young. And now I'm ancient enough to be a guest on my own program. <laughs> so, so Julie, you give me some wisdom. <laughs> the wisdom of the ages I want. Uh, so she's been married for 49 years. Um, and uh, she's about to go out on her 53rd date anniversary date anniversary with her husband, Lou. And I thought maybe you could tell the story about meeting my Brad for the first time. <laughs> do you remember, Mommy? My, oh, you, you, came, you came, we were in Chicago, and you came to visit. Well, you were, you were in a play. I, or it was, was it Brad's uh, Practical Theater? Yes. And you, were, you all were in that. So I had come to see it. And uh, you had been going out with somebody before. Right. Ken. Yes. Anyway, then here came Brad, uh, which I understood that this was Brad and this was no longer was no longer Ken. And so uh, you so I came, you all picked me up at the hotel and I came down and you said, oh, oh, mom, you look so nice. And I said, oh, thanks, honey. You do, too. And so does Ken. So <laughs> so, so, so we were off I to looked, a great start. And then we go to a restaurant. Well, wait a minute. I just want to interject here. I wanted to kill you when you did that. I was like, well, can you imagine? No, I cannot. Uh, Mom. I was putting up a, a, a firewall. <laughs> <laughs> but unbeknownst to myself, I was so pleased, you know, <laughs> to be there and, and blah, blah, blah. But then so we go to this restaurant, this fancy French restaurant downtown that was yeah. very few that was just unbelievable. Oh, so, I, it can, the name of it just came to me, Le Paraquet. Okay, exactly. Yes. And so, yes, we're having everything. Yes, do the souffles and bring all the wine and, and uh, you know, the sky's the limit. There's no end to this. And so and the, the meal finishes and I pull out my visa card and they say, well, we don't take visa. And so I said, well, so uh, Brad's father had sent him because he was starting the practical theater, sent him a MasterCard. No, no, American Express. American Express, okay, to be used for emergencies. You know, that you, you've got a business now that's to be used for so you looked at me with this, like a fire in your eyes. It's like, oh, get get out of here. And so, because Brad says, well, uh, here, I'll be happy to pay for this outrageously expensive dinner. I mean, it was outrageous. I never spent more than that for dinner. Yeah, it was a lot of money. And then you looked at me and you said, Mom, you write him a check here. You go home so fast. So, so, so Brad... Came through the firewall very well, and he, <laughs> he forgave. Well, maybe I'm not sure. I've never asked him if he ever forgave me. So would you, you talking to him? Would you ask him? Yeah, if he ever forgave me? I have a feeling he has, mommy. I have a feeling. Yes, he has. <laughs> but that was his introduction to you and our family. It wasn't our yeah. our first. Our first date was actually a, a 
we played tennis on our oh, first that's day. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that was, that was really fun. And then we went and we got sandwiches and I, and we, I remember we were sitting on a curb eating sandwiches or something and he was talking and talking. And I kept thinking, this guy never stops talking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he was nervous or what, but I mean, it was just like, it was a nonstop. <laughs> anyway. I- oh, that's, that's wonderful. By the way, um, at the event at the White House, which which it was just otherworldly, it was so fantastic. Uh, Daddy was sitting down and he sat down next to a gentleman and, and they got to talking and the gentleman said, why are you here? And so he said that, that uh, he was, he was your dad and, and uh, uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus, and so then the guys nods and nods, and so and so Dad says, "Well, why are you here?" He says, "Oh, well, I'm Amy Tan's brother." <laughs> oh, so they had a wonderful conversation. This being the you know the talking about you and you and Amy. Oh wow, how interesting! Wow, yeah. look at that full circle. That's so Isn't cool. That yeah, that's yeah. something else, Mom. So cool. Yeah, exactly. So cool. So, mommy, thank you so much for. Uh, making time to talk to me for this ridiculous podcast, and and please apologize to Brad and uh, tell him that that um, I'm bringing a check next time I see him. No, no, you get well. Feel free to bring us another check, but you did reimburse. You did. I, I remember you FedExed it. It came like in a, a quick hot second. <laughs> oh, I think that your whole future depended on that payment. Yeah, so. it kind of did, to be honest. Well, think about that. Your mother comes to town and scorches him and, and <laughs> calls him the wrong name. <laughs> and I actually liked him from the time I saw him, when I first saw him. I really, I liked, adored him. But, well, I didn't quite adore him, but I, I liked him very much. You liked and then him. I came, I came to adore him. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Love you, mommy. Love you, honey. Now, I'm going to show you I can leave it the right way. Ha, ha, ha. Now, here. Ha, 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 ha. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Wiser Than Me. Henry Hall, who wrote this groovy theme music for the show, has a new song out. It's called Suddenly a Kiss, and people, really seriously, it's so freaking good. So check out Suddenly a Kiss by Henry Hall on Spotify or wherever you listen to your music. And you can find him at Henry Hall Music on all platforms. There's more Wiser Than Me with Lemonada Premium. Subscribers get exclusive access to bonus content. Subscribe now in Apple Podcasts. Wiser Than Me is a production of Lemonada Media, created and hosted by me, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. The show is produced by Chrissy Pease, Alex McOwen, and Oha Lopez. Brad Hall is a consulting producer. Our senior editor is Tracy Clayton. Rachel Neal is our senior director of new content, and our VP of weekly production is Steve Nelson. Executive producers are Stephanie Whittles-Wax, Jessica Cordova-Kramer, Paula Kaplan, and me. The show is mixed by Kat Yore and Johnny Vince Evans, and music by Henry Hall. Special thanks to Charlotte Chrisman Cohen, and of course, my mother, Judith Bowles. Follow Wiser Than Me wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if there's an old lady in your life, listen up. This episode of Wiser Than Me is brought to you by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark makes their bourbon carefully, so please enjoy it that way. Maker's Mark Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, 45% alcohol by volume. Copyright 2024, Maker's Mark Distillery, Incorporated, Loretto, Kentucky. Hey, Wiser Than Me listeners. We want to hear from you. By just answering a few questions on our listener survey... You can share feedback about show content you'd like to see in the future and help us think about what brands would serve you best. And even better, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. The survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonademedia.com/survey. lemonademedia.com/survey.